Well, hello, fellow healthcare professionals. It's Mark, the remote medic here again with another podcast. Uh, I got another case study and another drive home point. So this case study is for a 26-year-old female who was called to be admitted to a mental health institution. Uh, She had a history of bipolar disorder or what they used to call manic depressant. And by the way, as healthcare professionals, we put the we put the patient before the disorder. So we don't say a manic depressant. We don't say an autistic person. We say a person with autism or a patient with bipolar disorder. Uh, that's really important, and uh, I just I just want to put that out there for all the mental health uh, professionals out there will thank me for that. I'm sure. So this patient with a history of bipolar disorder, uh, she had gone into the hospital demanding drugs. She's being a little irrational. Uh, She'd been off her meds, not taking them appropriately. And they wanted her uh, sent to the mental facility, mental health facility, which was about two and a half hours away. Initially, she came in aggressive, but um, they had given her some sublingual Ativan, and she had been cooperative uh, since then. She'd been in the hospital for a couple of hours. And the BLS ambulance, uh, that's EMTs, no paramedics, was initially called to do this transport. So the BLS crew picked her up and she was very compliant. Uh, They strapped her down on the cot, but no restraints. And, you know, I I think that, not that I'm judging them at all, but you know, that's something that we all do, um, I think, as pre-hospital care providers. I shouldn't say we all do it, but certainly the majority of the pre-hospital care providers that I work with, we have this... uh, this sense of arrogance when we approach mental health patients. We're actually pretty good at diffusing situations. I mean, we deal with stressful, high anxiety situations uh, in pretty well every call that we do, and we get damn good at dealing with it. And I think that one thing we do is we get really good at diffusing uh, high anxiety situations, and we take it for granted when we haul these Uh, mental health patients, when we're able to go to them and they're being irrational and they're in acute anxiety situation, they're being really aggressive, we're, a lot of times, we're able to talk them down. We talk them down and we make these deals with them, oh, I'll let you have a cigarette if you come nice with me, we'll, you know, stop for a Tim Hortons, whatever, lots of times we're lying to them anyways, but, uh, you know, these, these are the things that go on out there, let's, let's be, let's be realistic about this. So we convince them to walk into our ambulance and lay down on our cots and we put a seatbelt across them and we think that we've diffused the situation. And to be truthful, we have. We've diffused the initial crisis that they're going through. But we have not treated the fact that they're in a psychosis or the fact that they're in a depressed state or they're having some sort of reaction to perhaps drugs they've taken, maybe bath salts or methamphetamines or some of the other drugs that people take and then they go into a fit of rage and you can talk them out of it, but it's only a matter of time before they go back into it. And, uh, you know, this is, a, in my experience, this is a hallmark of people who suffer from schizophrenia. Uh, lots of times you can talk them out of their paranoid delusions or out of their rage just because talking to them distracts them. 
And once you start traveling down the road and you're talking less and less to them, they become less distracted and those thoughts start to creep up in their minds again or the voices or uh, whatever is setting them off initially, their triggers are starting to set them off again. And that's when we realize that we haven't restrained them properly. And, you know, that's exactly what this crew did. This crew did exactly what I would have done. They talked her into the ambulance, they, conv they made deals with her, and she was agreeable. They loaded her up on the cot, they put a seatbelt across her, and away we go. They got about 10 minutes out of town, and they mic dispatch and said that the patient had become violent and they needed the ALS ambulance, the paramedic, to intercept them, uh, as well as police. So what the patient had basically done was unbuckled herself and literally attacked the EMT attendant that was in the back. Now thankfully, he was able to fend her off and his partner uh, is an ex-military soldier and the two of them were able to subdue her and tie her down with triangulars. And so they, they tied each arm down to a railing, one on either side of her, and her legs uh, were straight and also tied down uh, the right leg to the right side of the cot, left leg to the left side of the cot. And they were, they were able to just basically restrain her like that until we got there being the ALS ambulance. So when I got to her, she was indefinitely in acute anxiety state. She was very aggressive. She was making a lot of threats and things like this and actively fighting to try and get out of those restraints, which were put on very well. After some discussion, uh, we decided that she would be chemically restrained and the ALS ambulance would take the transport from that point. Which, you know, physical restraints, they're a good temporary measure, but really, it's not good for the patient, it's not good for you, you know, it's, it's really not good for anybody. They need therapy that we can't give them in the ambulance, and we need to make the transport as safe as possible for everyone involved. The last thing that we need is these patients getting an arm free and next thing you know you get a right hook to the jaw and you're knocked out cold and put on disability for a couple weeks with a concussion. That's, that's just, just not good for anyone. So we ended up chemically restraining her. I used my favorite uh, restraint chemical and that's Versed. It's short onset and about a 30 minute duration. Initially I gave her 10 milligrams IM. I gave it in the deltoid. I prefer to use lateral thigh, uh, however, like I say, a 26 year old female with jeans on, fighting and biting and spitting and all of that kind of stuff, it's pretty unrealistic to try and get her jeans off and, and give an IM injection in the lateral thigh and I realize some people would go through the clothing but uh, I could lift her t-shirt up and do the deltoid so I did that. After I got the IM injection into her and it started to take effect, she was she was calming down enough that I had my partner actually sit on her right leg and I was able to get IV access into her right foot. I really like to get foot IV access whenever I can in patients like this because you can 
you can put the IV in the top of the foot, you know, very close to the toes. And it doesn't matter really what size of IV because we're just using this for sedation. We're not, we're not doing any fluid resuscitation or anything like that on these patients. So, you know, a 20 or, or if you have to, a 22. Sometimes those veins are kind of spidery down there, but I try to go for a 20. You can put that in down by their toes and, you know, your restraints are on the ankle and it's pretty hard for them to pop that thing out of there. You know, you put it in the back of their hand or their AC or something like that. It's pretty easy for them to get that thing worked out of there. So I got the IV established and I was giving her five milligrams of morphine, but, or sorry, of midazolam Versed, approximately Q 20 to 30 minutes as required. Another thing that I considered at the time was redoing her restraints, although uh, at the time I wasn't totally sure on what exactly to do. I got some advice after this call from uh, an absolutely fantastic paramedic that I, uh, supervisor of mine that I look up to, and he said take the patient's right arm and put it up over top of their head and restrain it there. Take their left arm and restrain it to the left side of their bed. And take the right leg, restrain it to the left side of the bed. Take their left leg, restrain it to the right side of the bed. And I've done this since and it works absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I just gotta put a plug in here that nobody, please, do not cross a patient's arms across their chest and never ever transport them prone. Those are great ways to asphyxiate these patients, uh, especially when we're using sedation. You need to allow their chest to expand adequately. And the hogtie position is a big no-no, prone is a no-no, and crossing their arms across their chest or bending them over forwards is a big no-no. And I will I will challenge you if you think that that if you think that I'm off base with that, uh, go ahead and cross your arms across your chest, nice and tight, as if you were restrained that way, and just sit down in a chair and lean forward a little bit, and just see how long you can stay like that till your breathing gets really uncomfortable, and then imagine doing that with Versed or Haldol or Ativan on board, and and just imagine uh, how long it would take you to get hypoxic like that. Not very long. So back to our case, yeah, I was, so I was giving her, I gave her the 10 IM and I was giving her 5 milligram doses, Q20 to 30 minutes IV. And uh, I noticed that she started to desaturate a little bit. And, you know, I contribute that to the, or attribute that to the Versed. Uh, you know, we all know it causes some hypoventilation. A little bit shallower resps, not quite as many breaths per minute when you're dealing with higher doses of Versed. So I put a nasal cannula on her, and that, you know, that brought up her, her SpO2 back up to 98, 99%. I was happy. We continued down the road. We were about an hour and hour and 15 minutes into uh, into our trip, and she had become quite sedated. I get, I had just given another five milligram IV dose. Obviously, as the as the sedation wore off, I was redosing PRN, as I say, and with this one particular dose, 
Um, I probably could have cut it back to 2.5, but I'd given five. Again, as I say, she was, you know, spitting and trying to roll and things like that. And I was really worried that she was going to dislocate her shoulder was the, the biggest problem I was worried about. So I had given her another five milligrams. At this point, we're now up to about 25 milligrams of Versed. Now, just, just a disclaimer in here. Do remember that... Uh, this is a patient who is demanding drugs. She takes pharmaceuticals recreationally and she does have quite a tolerance. So I realize 25 milligrams sounds like a really, really big dose, but after 20 milligrams, she's still rolling around on the cot, hollering and screaming and kicking her feet and throwing an all out tantrum. So although the numbers say that she should be to the point of intubation by now, clinical observation and assessment clearly states that no she has uh, she has quite a tolerance built up for these drugs and she is able to take some big doses so after I gave her this five milligrams so we're now at 25 milligrams she became quite sedated she uh, pretty well stopped talking completely uh, she was still breathing her spo2 was still nice and high at 98 percent uh, but she basically went to sleep and I decided while she was in this state of sleepiness to slip my end-tidal CO2 on her, uh, which, which I absolutely love. And I think that every patient who has a respiratory component to their presentation needs to have end-tidal CO2 put on. I just think it's just incredible, whether you're nebbing a copd or or uh, have someone intubated or using high doses of morphine and they're hypoventilating or like this, uh, using high doses of sedation and they're hypoventilating. These are the patients who I think should always have quantitative monitoring with entitled CO2. So I threw on the entitled CO2 and to my amazement, her entitled CO2 was 86. She had an SpO2 of 98 and an end-tidal CO2 of 86. So I immediately stimulated her and, you know, a little touch on the shoulder and start talking to her. And she started talking back to me a little bit and got her breathing a little bit faster, got her talking and, and was able to bring that end-tidal down to within normal limits. I got it down around 45, 40 to 45. Uh, left her alone for a few more minutes and that end title started creeping back up as she went back into her sedative-induced sleep. And I just did that for the rest of the trip. She required no more sedation. Uh, there was only about a half an hour left of the trip at that point. You know, her end title had come up and I'd stimulate her. She'd take a couple of deep breaths, do some talking, and then I'd let her go back to sleep and her end title would creep up a little bit. And, you know, I'd only let it get up to about 50 and I'd bother her again. And the whole time her oxygen saturation stayed at around 98, 99%. So here comes the take home point about these patients. I already said that we should be using end title on, on all of these patients and absolutely we should. When I reflect on this call and I think about this physiology of what was happening, it seems so obvious. This patient was hypoventilating at um, whatever, 10 breaths per minute, 
very shallow respirations and she started to desaturate. But she didn't desaturate because she was oxygen deficient. She desaturated because she was ventilation deficient. And instead of concentrating on her ventilations, I treated her oxygenation. So I gave her, I increased her partial pressure of oxygen by putting on a nasal cannula at four liters. And so what I did was I hyperoxygenated her, but she still was not ventilating appropriately. And so what happened is the, the hemoglobin were getting fully saturated with oxygen. By putting on a nasal cannula at four liters, I hyperoxygenated her and I gave myself a false sense of security by looking at her SpO2 and seeing that it was 98, 99% and seeing that she had been hyperoxygenated. But what I didn't take into account was the fact that she was hypoventilating. So she was able to have gas exchange, no problem, lots of oxygen, but she was, she was not able to blow off enough carbon dioxide because so this patient now that is being hyperoxygenated with a nasal cannula and giving me an SpO2 reading of 98-99% is becoming severely hypercarbic because she is not ventilating adequately. She has shallow depth and a very slow rate. And because I gave oxygen, I increased the inspired pressure, partial pressure of oxygen, and I hyperoxygenated her blood. But I was not able, that does not affect the carbon dioxide level in her body. So she ended up in an acidosis based off having so much carbon dioxide built up in her bloodstream and not blowing it off through ventilations. Now as you can imagine, this is a very dangerous situation because we're taking these patients as paramedics and perhaps some physicians and we're sedating them and we're putting on oxygen because they're hypoventilating and we're increasing the amount of oxygen that they breathe in with each breath and that's giving us a high SpO2 but a high SpO2 does not mean a low CO2. All a high SpO2 means is they're getting enough oxygen. But it doesn't matter how much oxygen you have, if your CO2 level in your blood is 150, you're going to have a cardiac arrest. And that is what these patients are being put at risk of when we give them drugs to hypoventilate them and don't monitor their carbon dioxide levels.
And since we're not doing it through blood gases, we've got to be doing it through our end-tidal CO2s. And the end-tidal CO2 nasal cannula is absolutely fine for this. It just looks like a regular nasal cannula. Some of them you can even attach oxygen to them. And you plug it into your, uh, I believe this new Zolen series, uh, series monitors has end-tidal detectors on them. I use LifePak 12 and 15. They both have end-tidal detectors on them. Or you can get the little handheld devices. And if you're, if you're using these drugs in these doses, and you don't have an end-tidal CO2 detector because your employer hasn't provided you with one, whether it's not in the budget because it's a low-income ambulance or they're just being cheap, you need to purchase one. And you really need to be monitoring these patients' end titles. We can do a lot of harm out there uh, by putting these patients into an acidosis, especially if we are combating other, uh, other bad especially if we are combating other bad things going on with these patients, such as drug-induced acute anxiety states or suicidal tendencies. Scratch that. such as drug-induced manias, or if they have any lung disease pathologies, or if they've taken other drugs or ingested other substances that cause an acidosis, such as an aspirin toxicity, or borderline oxygen aspirin toxicity. We can really do bad things for these patients. And so the take-home point for me from this call was any time that we have a patient that we are transporting that has a respiratory component, whether that is induced by disease, by trauma, by overdose, or by medications that I have given them, always use the end-tidal CO2. Now I got one more suggestion for these patients, and that is, if, you're, if you do not have access to end-tidal CO2 in, an, in a side stream nasal cannula, for whatever reason, and I certainly hope it's not that you're taking a moral stance or an ethical stance that if your employer won't buy it for you, you're not going to buy it because that's just not good patient advocacy. If your employer won't buy it and supply it on the ambulance, that's their problem. It shouldn't be the patient's problem. You should see to it that uh, it gets done, whether you need to fundraise or pull it out of your own pocket or whatever needs to happen. 
But if for some reason your end title malfunctions or uh, you have no nasal, like they're on back order or something silly like that, do your patient a huge favor and don't put oxygen on them. Only then can you look at your SpO2 to give you a representation of how they are both oxygenating and ventilating. Because when you sedate a patient to the point that they are hypoventilating, whether you're doing sedation or pain control, when you get them to the point that they are hypoventilating, their oxygen saturations will drop and their end tidal CO2 will rise. Their oxygen levels in their blood will drop and their carbon dioxide levels in their blood will rise. If you put oxygen on, you're going to bring back up the oxygen levels, but the carbon dioxide levels are only going to get worse. So if you're going to take these patients and give them heavy sedation or heavy pain control, and you're worried that they're going to hypoventilate and you don't have end-tidal CO2, do not put oxygen on them. If they start to desaturate, you need to deal with that in mechanical ways. You need to stimulate them. You need to perhaps assist their ventilations. But you absolutely should not put oxygen on them if you don't have end-tidal CO2 because you will only mask their acidosis. One other little point I want to make is be very, very careful with overweight people using heavy sedation or heavy pain control to the point of sedation. Overweight, obese people are prone to sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. And if you are going to give them heavy doses of sedation or analgesia, you had best be ready to manage their airway. So be very wary when giving these people um, these large doses of medications that you may have to um, put in uh, an NPA, a nasal airway of some kind, um, or if you really go over the top, you may end up having to do more advanced airway procedures for these patients uh, because of their obstructive sleep apnea. And, uh, you know, that's one way that us, especially out here in the remote areas, we can really get into trouble, is giving somebody with obstructive sleep apnea a heavy sedative when they're overweight and get up into get into a situation where they need advanced airway control and now we've got a patient who had um, a patent airway and was ventilating just fine um, and now we've taken away their their airway uh, while providing sedation or pain control and now we've got to do uh, an intubation on, uh, on an obese patient uh, who's probably going to be a difficult intubation and who is going to be extremely difficult to ventilate uh, with a bag valve mask. We know that because they have obstructive sleep apnea, so uh, obviously they're not an easy ventilation. And we can end up in a, 
in a situation of can't intubate, can't ventilate uh, in an obese patient because we were giving them big doses of morphine for their broken ankle. Um, yeah, so that's the second podcast. Um, I hope it was interesting and I hope the sound quality is okay. We'll talk to you all next time.